0: it, so he's good, okay, very good, all right, all right, if anybody else needs a copy, I've got one left, we're going to auction it off to the highest bidder, okay, all right, well let's go ahead and get started this morning with a word of prayer, and uh, then we'll jump off in, we've got lots of ground to cover, so we need to get going, okay, Ethan, do we have a mic back there, or is this, okay, how about that? Yes, no, still no. Well, I'm going to pray. we would seek to, to know and to love, to adore you, the greatness of who you are. Lord, I pray that this morning in particular you would give me clarity as I seek to teach these men from your word. I pray that you would give them the ability to grasp and comprehend concepts that are, are, can be challenging and confusing. I pray that all of us at the end of today would uh, have grown in our love and respect and admiration for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name amen. All right, now we're live, okay? Very good. All right. (laughs) Yeah, now now we're tuned in, so good. Very, very good. All right, so um, lots to talk about here this morning, um, and I was so grateful for Pastor Alex filling in for me last week. Uh, I went back and listened to that, and he did just a great job talking about the doctrine of indwelling, explaining some of the difference between the Old Testament, the New Testament, the gift that we have that is ours now. Um, And one of the things that I most appreciated about what he said, what he was explaining to you men, is the absolute importance of not taking for granted uh, that which we have been given in the Holy Spirit and the power that is ours in our life because we have the gift of the Spirit indwelling us. Um, you know, He was talking about the reality that for millennia, uh, followers of God, believers in God, longed for the day when the spirit of God would be implanted within man, mankind. Um, and yet here we are having that spirit, receiving that indwelling, and yet very often we don't give it a second thought. We don't ever express appreciation for that. We don't calibrate our lives for the power of it. Um, And we just kind of assume it as being true as a fact, but we don't actually stop to really contemplate and calibrate for for what that means for us. I mean, I was was so grateful that he brought that up. And the reason why I say I'm so very grateful for that is because that is exactly the point that Jesus is making in John 14, right? Where he's saying, look, I'm leaving, Um, but something better is going to come to you, something that is going to make a, a true, full relationship, not only with me, but with God the Father, possible. And that's where he introduces, then there in John 14, the person, the work, the nature of the Holy Spirit, really for the very first time. And he connects it into the relationship that those men and that we now have with God because of the Spirit's indwelling presence within us. And that really is where we're going on Sunday morning here, because we're right up to that very point in the text where Jesus has been saying, it's better, it's better, I am the way, I'm a better way, I am the truth, I'm a better truth, and you're gonna know the truth about God and all the fullness of the truth that is to be known of him. But then he talks about the way that you can have life, Uh, and really the substance of that spiritual life that has been granted to us is the presence of the Holy Spirit. And that is where we're going in the text on Sunday, the power of the Spirit's presence within our life, which honestly is just a perfect dovetail to where we're at here in the text. So we're supposed to be talking about the doctrines of regeneration, which I know Pastor Alex started in on last week and illumination here today Um, and I I do hope to get to those things but there are um, some other things I think that spring up out of the text in John 14 15 16 and 17 as it relates to the nature of the Holy Spirit and his relationship to the Father and the Son and the Son's relationship to the Father and the Spirit and the Father's relationship to the Son and the Spirit that we really need to understand Um, because once you understand the nature of the Trinity which I know is ultimately an a fully impossible task, but once you begin to, to grasp um, some of those intra-Trinitarian pieces, the power of the Spirit in your life really starts to come alive and, and make a lot more sense. The, the doctrines of regeneration and illumination, our understanding of those doctrines, indwelling, regeneration, illumination, those primary functions of the Spirit um, become incredibly powerful when you set them correctly into their Trinitarian context. And I think that's why there's such a Trinitarian emphasis in John 14 through 17. It's because that un- the proper understanding of the Trinity really brings to life the power of what it means for you now to have the Holy Spirit resident within you. And that's really what I want to do here this morning um, is is go into a little bit of Trinitarian theology with you men and seek to understand that just a little bit better because there's so much of it that comes up in John 14 through 17. um, And I can't get into all of that intra-Trinitarian theology on a Sunday morning uh, because it would just be way, way too much for what a Sunday morning is for, but it's not too much for what this is for. That's why we're gathered here together today is to try to understand some of these more challenging things. And so my hope is that as we go through this this morning, we're really kind of laying a base and a foundation, especially for you men, as we head into Sunday, that your appreciation for what's in the text of there in John 14 would be even more profound because we've covered some of the theological ground that I'm, I'm hoping we're able to cover here this morning. Okay, Make sense? So today is Trinity day. Um, which means we do have an awful lot of very challenging ground to cover together. So I hope you guys got got a second cup of coffee uh, because you're definitely going to need it here this morning, all right? So let's do some theological investigation here, Um, and I'm going to stick primarily to John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 as we seek to understand some of these things. Um, These truths are just plastered all over the scriptures, and so there's a lot of different texts that we could go to, but for the sake of clarity, Um, And in the service of um, pursuing the clarity that we need in our Sunday series, um, I want to just stick to those texts because I think there's enough material in John 14 through 17 to help us understand the things that we need to understand, okay? Uh, You know, and and as we've been saying on Sundays, John 14, it really kicks off kind of a walk, if you will, through through a foreign land for these disciples where they... They could not understand um, what Jesus was saying because they did not have the Spirit of God within them yet. Um, And Jesus is explaining to them the benefits that will be theirs once the Spirit of God comes. And so he begins to explain to them the power of what indwelling is going to mean, the power of what regeneration is going to mean, the power of what illumination will be for them. And for them, it's, it's really kind of this, this walk through just a foreign place that they can't even begin to comprehend because they've never experienced that. Um, and the promises that Jesus makes, it's, it's like a place that just shimmers with something that's beyond imagination for these guys. But as I've already said, it's something that you and I, that, that we take for granted. And so it's important that we not take it for granted. That we go back, stop, and seek to understand it. Um, And so that's what we wanna do this morning, all right? So the first thing that that I wanna talk about here is the unity of the Trinity, okay? When it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity, um, often people will make two very different and opposite mistakes. Either they will overemphasize the unity of the Trinity and say there is one God who manifests himself in, alternatively, "in, in three different modes, okay? Um, where there is kind of that, that modality. We've talked about this before when we talked about theology proper. Um, it, it, it's, it's a modalism is the name of that heresy, that there's one God who just manifests himself in, in three different ways at three different times or in, 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 at different times. But then there's, there's, an, there's the opposite mistake, which is known as tritheism, okay? Which there really isn't one God. Um, there is a God who is made up of three... Completely separate parts. We have essentially three gods, and while we may pay lip service to it, that there's really only one. Um, You know, he's Father, Son, and Spirit. Three completely separate beings. And and both of those errors, whether it's three gods that we worship or it's a single god that we worship, are both Trinitarian errors. And the truth of it is introduced to us in John 13, 14, and 15 where we find out that God is both three distinct persons, but he is one essence. And that's what I want to talk about. So we want to talk this morning just a little bit about the unity of the Trinity, but then also what is it that causes the Trinity to be distinct from each other? All right, so we're going to emphasize first the, the absolute unity that exists between them, and then we'll see why that's important for the doctrines of regeneration and illumination but we're going to be very careful to make sure that we maintain the lines of distinction between them. And we're going to try to investigate that here just a little bit together, okay? So, John chapter 13, what what we find Jesus introducing here to us is the concept that he is utterly one with the Father, and the Father is one with him. He is one with the Spirit, and the Spirit is one with him. The Spirit is one with the Father, and the Father is one with the Spirit. Okay, There there is a complete unity that exists between the members of the Trinity. Let me show that to you here from the text. So let's just kind of blow through this in chronological order and I'll I'll try to show it to you as we go so you can see it directly out of the text. So let's start in John 1331. Okay. Uh, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him God will also glorify him, the Son of Man, in himself, and he will glorify him at once. You see how the the, the single act there of Christ's work uh, glorifies the Father because he says there the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father, and therefore both of them together are glorified at the same time, and that time, Jesus says, is now. There's a oneness that exists there between them. You can see the same thing there in chapter 14, verse 7, where he says, look, people, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Why? Because they are one. And he says, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. How is that possible? Well, because they have have seen Christ. But Christ is leaving. So how is that possible? If Christ is leaving, that they are able now to see the Father in perpetuity. Because, he goes on to say, that I am going to give you a helper. Skip down to verse 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. The Holy Spirit is one with me and with the Father as well, he says there. John chapter 14, verse 9, he says, Have have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father. Now, this is very important. Jesus is in the Father, and the Father is in me, he says. Verse 13, he says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Uh, Let's skip down to chapter 17 now, and I'll show you it here. He, He keeps going like that. I am in the Father, the Father is in me. We are both in the Spirit, and the Spirit is in you. But keep going in chapter 17, uh, verse 11 specifically. He says, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. He's speaking about us, his followers. But I am coming to you. So, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are, what? One. Okay. Okay. And then 17:20 20 through 23, he says, and I'm not asking for these only, uh, the people in the room, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who does that include? Us, right? We are his disciples now. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them. That they may be one even as we are one. Do you see the emphasis that he puts there on his oneness with the Father? That there is a that there is an identity that exists there between them. Right? And that's what we want to zero in on here just a little bit. Is this idea of the unity that exists within the Trinity because that ends up having some pretty profound impacts on us as you can see there down in chapter 17, which thankfully we're still a ways away from getting to on Sundays, okay? Um, so, So here is the idea that you can clearly see coming out of these verses. The members of the Trinity, they fully indwell one another, all right? This is a doctrine that is known as perichoresis. How many of you have ever heard of the word perichoresis? Perry Mason, there it is. You've heard of him. And I and I've heard of diseases that require antibiotics that sound a lot like this as Bruce told me earlier to, earlier this week. But I'll be honest with you guys, I had never heard of the doctrine of perichoresis up until this week as I was trying to dig into the text in John 14 to understand what does it mean that the father is in the son and the son is in the father. Um, and so here's a word that now you guys know it and that makes you smarter than seminarians because they don't even teach this word in seminary, but now you guys know it. So there you go, all right? The doctrine of perichoresis says that the members of the Trinity indwell one another fully. All right, they occupy the same, you could say, divine space of deity. So oftentimes we think of the Trinity as being kind of like a Venn diagram, right? Where you got father, son, and spirit, and where they overlap, that's, that's God, but they're separate. And that, that's incorrect. Okay, you can't pull apart the members of the Trinity like that. Their operations are inseparable, and that's a very important term when it comes to Trinitarian understanding. Inseparable operations—you can't pull them apart and say this is a function of the Father and this is this this relates exclusively to the Son and, and this over here to the Spirit. They they aren't separable in that way. Okay. If one is engaged, they all are engaged because they are all of the same divine nature. They all fully occupy the, the land of deity, okay? The, the, the space of deity. That's the doctrine of perichoresis. They all fully ind, indwell and are present in one another. What does that mean? It means that they are co-essential, They share the same essence. It means that they are consubstantial. That means they share the same substance and they are co-equal. They share the same power. All right. Do you you guys remember the doctrine of divine simplicity that we covered last? What would it be? Fall? Doctrine of divine simplicity says you, you cannot do what with God? Separate him. Okay. You can't break him down into component parts. He is one whole. He is not the sum total of his attributes. It's not as though you can say God is this plus this plus this plus this. Okay? He is not, he is not the, the, the sum of a bunch of parts. He is not a bunch of parts. No, God is a, a single, simple whole. And because of that reality, you can't separate him down into just Father, Son, and Spirit and think of him as three different parts just somehow stitched together, okay? He is a whole. And so father is fully God, son, fully God, spirit, fully God. Okay, you see, you see what I'm saying? So you can't bifurcate them into parts. What that means for the doctrines of regeneration and illumination is that we have to keep an eye on the fact that the spirit is one with the father and the son. Just as the father and the son are one with another, so too is the spirit, one with the father and the son. So it's not just that the spirit is the only person who's concerned with your regeneration or with your illumination or your sanctification. No, where the spirit acts, the son and the father are also acting because you can't separate the spirit out from the work of the father and the son. Now I gave you guys a very confusing chart there uh, in your notes. Uh, That maybe will help you understand this just a little bit. Okay, God. Is father spirit son. But the son is not the Holy Spirit and the father is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the father and the father is not the son. But the father is fully in the son. And the son is fully in the spirit. And the spirit is fully in the son. And the spirit is fully in the father. All right, so they fully indwell one another. All right? there, there, is, there is no divine space that they do not all fully occupy. Their, their operations are, are inseparable. That's what we're talking about here. That's a very, very important term. Okay? They, being identical in nature, never act independently from one another. All right? So they are all one. Jesus says. Now that does not mean that there is no distinction between their persons. Okay. It does mean that there is no difference in their persons. Okay. So their nature is all the same. Uh, Their essence is all the same. Their authority is all the same. Uh, Their wills are all the same. Okay. There is no there is no difference between the, the, the power of the father. And the power of the son. And the power of the spirit. There is no difference. In the nature of the father. The nature of the son. The nature of the spirit. There is no difference. In the will of the father. Versus the will of the son. Versus the will of the spirit. They are all the same. Are, their will. Their nature. Their essence. Their power. Their authority. Is one. Because there is one God. Okay. There is no difference in them, you could say ontologically, by, in, in terms of their very nature in that way. Does that mean that there is no distinction between them, though? There's no difference in them, but is there distinction between them? Yes. Okay, good. I'm glad you guys are following me so far. There is clearly a distinction between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, And we'll get into that here in just a little bit. What is that distinction? If it's not a distinction in will, power um, or authority or nature or essence, what what is the distinction? They sound like they're all just like, like there's one, not three, okay? But you can't get down into the distinction of what makes them three until you understand the consubstantiality, the sameness that exists within them, the unity that exists between them. That's where you have to start, okay? So that means where the Spirit is, wherever the Spirit is, there too is the Father and the Son. That means what the Spirit does, so too does the Father and the Son. What the Spirit desires, so too desires the Father and the Son. You can't draw lines between them. Now that becomes very important in John chapter 14. Because Jesus is going to explain to these men and to us, he already has been explaining, that if you have the Spirit resident within you, indwelling you, then you are also simultaneously in the presence of who? The Father and the Son. Because you cannot draw lines of difference between the presence of the Spirit and the presence of the Son. It's not as though you and I right now having the spirit within us have access to one third of God, okay? It's not as though a third of God is active today and we're just waiting until the day when we kick off and die and then the other two thirds of of God come into the picture and begin to do work on our behalf. No, you have the fullness of God, the totality of his nature, resident within you if you know Jesus Christ. And that's why the scriptures talk about, if you have the Holy Spirit, you've got the mind of Christ. You've got the person of Christ dwelling within you. It's why it says you are the temple of the holy God. It's why it talks about you having now a relationship to the Father. It's why Jesus goes on to say in John chapter 14, verse 23, that the Father and I will come to you once you've received the Spirit, and through the Spirit, we will make our dwelling place with you, in you. Okay, so you can't, you can't subdivide the Godhead out and say, Well, I've got the Spirit, and and I'm waiting for the presence of the Son and the Father to come along. No. To, to have one is to have all, for they are all one. Okay, they all one of them occupies the fullness of divinity as much as the others do, okay? So to have the Spirit is to be in the presence of the Son and the Father because the Son is in the Father, the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Spirit, and the Spirit is in the Son. That does not mean that the Spirit is the Son or that the Spirit is the Father, okay? The spirit is in the father and the spirit is in the son, but the spirit is not the father and the spirit is not the son. Are you tracking with me so far? Okay. Huh? Clear as mud. Clear as mud. Perfect. Just the way we like it. Right? No, what I'm trying to emphasize here in this section is the oneness of God. Okay. The fact that they, that they all over, not overlap. That's a, that's a bad term. Um, but they—they they all are identical. That's the right term. They're identical to one another in essence, nature, power, authority. Okay, there is no difference in them. So to be in the presence of one is to be in the presence of another. To to, to know the desires of one is to know the desires of another. Um, to experience the work of one is to experience the work of the others, because they are identical in nature, in purpose, in will, in power, authority. Okay, that's the idea of oneness. Okay? So you can't say this is the realm of the spirit, this is the realm of the father, and they overlap here just in this little sliver of the Venn diagram in the middle. No, they, they overlap completely because they are one to that kind of a degree. All right, any questions on that so far? Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What what the word in means. It means that the that the son indwells the father and the father indwells the son. There's a there's a totality, wholeness, unity to them. They are not each other, they're distinct from each other, and I'll talk here in a second about what makes them distinct from each other but there is an identity that exists between them that is the same. To see one, Jesus says, is to see the, is to see the other, right? If you, see, if you see me, he says, we saw that last Sunday, you have seen who? The Father, for he is the exact image, imprint, and representation of, of the Father because they, they, they have the same substance, they're consubstantial. They have the same essence, they're coessential. They have the same power. They're co-equal. Okay? Yeah. hmm Which is kind of what got us into this mess. Because when I, when I was here with you last time, we were talking about praying to the Holy Spirit. And my comment to you guys at the end of the, of the time was you, you cannot subdivide out the members of the Trinity and say this prayer only goes to the Holy Spirit. No. A prayer to Him is a prayer to the whole because they are all one right does that know, no, is no. that where you were going that makes sense, but okay i'm just looking for, for because yeah I'm used to the yeah in the so yeah y- yes and and well you should be okay because it is through the work of the sun and we'll get in we'll get into that here in a little bit when we talk about distinctions uh, the work of the spirit versus the work of the son versus the work of the father. But what I'm trying to get you guys to understand right now is that those works are all interconnected to one another and they don't they don't operate independently from one another, okay? Which is what my is. Right. Because essence- yeah. All together. Yes. Right. So let me let me let me get into that here when we talk about distinctions. Okay. But let me let me maybe give you to bring this you know very theoretical philosophical concept down to the level of like what do I do with all of this? Okay. Let me let me give you some practical implications of it here just really quickly. This idea of oneness. We all struggle with our sin. Clearly, right. And I think we have a really bad habit of thinking to ourselves. Well, I know I have the Spirit of God within me, but the urges that I feel in my flesh are so strong, he will forgive me. But if the person of Jesus was standing here next to me, well, then there's accountability and I wouldn't do anything. Whoa, wait a minute. If you have the Holy Spirit resident within you, that means that the person of the Son and the Father are here with you right now too. Okay, so you can't bifurcate them out and say somehow the Holy Spirit's presence is a lesser kind of presence than the presence of the Son. And so when you face a temptation like that, you've got to recognize that the fullness of God is resident within you, Father, Spirit, and Son. Because to be in the Spirit is to be in the Son is to be in the Father. And the reason for that is because they are all one. And that's what Jesus says here. Okay? He says, "Just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, so now are all of you in me and I am in you." Well, how could how could Jesus say that I am in you and you are in me? It's through the presence of the Spirit of God, right? The Spirit of God is the one who is in you. But because the, the, the son is in the spirit and the spirit is in the son. Jesus can say, as the spirit is in you, the helper, so too am I in you. And if the father is in me and I am in the father, then so too is the presence of the father in you. So that comes with a pretty powerful punch, right? When it comes time to talk about how you think about fighting your sin. It's not just an invisible Holy Spirit that you may or may not be aware of. No, it's the fullness of the presence of God that you are walking in. It's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians, what business does light have being united with darkness? What business does Christ have being united with the things of the devil? So take care how you walk, so that in the way that you walk, you do not unite the presence of God with evil. Right? It's the fullness of God's presence. Let me give you another practical implication of this. Uh, Jesus gives it to us actually down in chapter 17. Um, We already looked at it a little bit in 17 verse 20. He says um, that they may all be one having our spirit within them just as you father are in me and I am in you. There's that idea of unity that they all of us may now be caught up into us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Um, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that's the presence of the Spirit now resident within us, that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus is talking there about the unity of his people. Okay, he's saying, if... The Father and I are one, and we are one with the Spirit as well, and the Spirit is in all of you. Well, what does that mean for the unity of brothers and sisters in Christ? You can't be divided from one another. Why? Because you both have the same Spirit of God within you. And if God is one, and he now resides in you, well, you can't be at odds with one another because that flies in the very face of the unity of the Godhead. And, and that doesn't work. And so Jesus' final prayer for his men, for his people, and for us, is that essentially we would all get along knowing that we have the Spirit of God within us and that we would follow his new commandment, which is to love one another just as he has loved us. Why? Because we now all share together the presence, the fullness of God through his spirit who has been planted within us. Okay, so there's pretty profound implications there for the doctrine, or for the idea of Christian unity, all right? So those are some of the, the practical implications of this idea of oneness. All right, do you guys see the importance of that? Okay, any questions? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I, I, I know there are, okay? All right, well, let's, let's keep going. All right, so we've talked about how that they are one, that there is an identity that exists there. There is no difference between the members of the Trinity. Now let's talk about what makes them distinct. Okay, do you understand that, that terminology, that there's no difference between them, but there is distinction amongst them? Okay, so they all share the same essence, the same nature, but that doesn't mean that there is no distinction. Okay, so let's talk about the distinction in persons. And here's where we get into where the Spirit comes from. See, the Father, uh, this is a quote from Kevin DeYoung. Is that in your notes, the DeYoung quote there? Very helpful. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct persons. They are to be distinguished respectively by the ideas, and I'll explain these, the ideas of paternity, filiation, and spiration. And yet we must not think of the three persons as being three faces in a yearbook. Because the Father indwells the Son, the Son indwells the Spirit, the Spirit indwells the Father, and you could reverse the order in each one of those pairs. Okay, what he's basically talking about here is what's called the eternal relations of origin. This is what distinguishes the members of the Trinity from one another. Now, when we say origin, we don't mean starting point. Okay, We don't mean this is where they began. It means... It, it, it's talking about their nature. all right. So this is what defines the distinction between the members of the Trinity. The Father, this is the classic formulation that was given to us based on Scripture articulated in the Nicene Creed back in the 300s AD. The Father is unbegotten. Okay, that's what we mean when we say paternity. Okay, he is the unbegotten one. The Son is begotten by the father means he is eternally generated by the father so the nature of the son comes out of the nature of the father again that does not mean that the son is created it does not mean that the son had a beginning point it's talking about origin not starting okay that's not a chronological term do you understand what i'm saying Okay, that's a very important clarification to make, and it's why we say that the son is eternally, from eternity past, with no point of beginning, he is eternally generated from the father's nature. That's what it means for him to be begotten. Does not mean that he's created, does not mean that he had a starting point. He has always been generated out of the nature the father's nature. Therefore, there is no knowledge that the Son has that the Father does not, and there is no knowledge that the Father has that the Son does not, because they share the same nature. But the Son proceeds from that nature of the Father. The Father is unbegotten, the Son is begotten. The Spirit then proceeds from both the Father and the Son. Okay, So He, that's the doctrine of spiration or procession, He is sent from the Father, sent from the Son. And that is very clearly articulated in John chapter 14. We're going to get into that, not quite this deep, on Sunday, where Jesus says in John chapter 14, look with me now. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Who is it that sends the Spirit? Father or Son? It's it's a joint work between the two of them. Okay, the Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son. He comes from the hand of the Father at the request of the Son. Okay, so the Spirit comes from both of them. The Son does not generate the essence of the Father. The Father generates the essence of the Son. The Spirit does not proceed, or the Father does not proceed from the Spirit The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, okay? So it works in one direction. Father generates the essence of the Son, very same nature, consubstantial, co-equal, co-eternal. The Father generating the essence of the Son from His own nature. The Son does not generate the Father. The Father generates the Son. It goes one way, not the other. This is what makes them distinct. And then the Father and the Son together send the Spirit. They spirate, if you will, the Spirit. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. This is the nature of what makes them distinct. They're not different from each other in nature. They're not different from each other essentially in role. They're not different from each other in power or authority. What makes them distinct is their eternal relationship of origin, where they each come from. So what does that mean practically for how the triune God works with humanity? It means that the Father works through the Son and the Father and the Son work together through the Spirit. And it's those relations of origin that distinguish them from one another. The distinction is not one of will or nature, authority or role. Okay, So here's the practical implication of that. Just as the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father and the Son is in the Spirit and the Spirit's in the Son... Now the Spirit is in you, and you are in him. And that's what you can see happening there in John 14, 16 through 17, where Jesus says, I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Okay, yeah, Tom. Right. Yes. That's very important. We're going to talk about that on Sunday. Okay. You see there how that the nature of this helper is synonymous with the nature of Christ's helping, right? He's another of the same kind, not a different kind altogether, not a more authoritative or a less effective one. He's of the same type of help. It's just that now he's going to be in you whereas during this time Christ had been with them so they had help with them now through the presence of the spirit they're going to have help in them and that's the very beating heart of what Jesus means when he says this is this is going to be better this new relationship that you have with me is going to be better for you will have my presence in you not just here with you okay so there there is a distinction guys between the members of the trinity but it's not a distinction of essence. It's a distinction of origin, not beginning, origin. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So as I understand it, begotten means to Generate from the same essence. So the essence of the Father, he manifests himself as he generates the person of his Son. And therefore the Son is an exact representation of the Father's nature. For he comes from the same essence. Okay? The Spirit then is not generated in the same way, but is rather sent from the Father, at the request of the Son to humanity. So it's as we see the Son that we understand the nature of God. For he is the manifestation of God's nature. But it's as we receive the Spirit that now our eyes are opened and we are brought to life. Right, well, and that's where we have to make sure we, we don't delete the word Eternal. The eternal, or the, the eternal relations of origin, and that the Son is eternally generated. Okay, I, I want to make sure we're being very, very clear. When we say generated, it's not as though there was a time when the Son did not exist and God the Father decided, and now I'm going to generate my Son. No, it is an eternal generation. It has always been that Christ is generated from the Father. All right? You can't, you can't look at that idea of generation and think chronology point, of t- point in time. It's an eternal generation. It's always been this way, okay? He's always been, I hate to use the word carbon copy because that now implies two separate, but he is, an et- he, he is a perfect representation of the father because he is, he is one with the father being generated from the father's nature from all of time past. So that the nature of God might be manifestable to us, so that we might now see God and know God, because we can see and, man, and we can see the, the the nature of God in the person of Christ. Uh, no, the Holy Spirit proceeds from, so he 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 has the same nature, but he is sent from the Father and the Son, both the Son, at the request of the Son to dwell within us and to illuminate us. Yeah. So this gets... <laughs> this gets into the distinction between what is known as the imminent trinity and the economic trinity. Yeah, but it... Let, let, me, let me try to, I think this is, this is helpful. Because a lot of times, so the economic trinity, that's a term that talks about how God interacts with mankind. Imminent trinity is a term that refers to how God actually is. And what you see being revealed to us here in John 14 through 17, really is primarily the imminent trinity. This is how God actually is. He is one, and he is distinguished from him, amongst himself, only by the eternal um, operations of origin, okay? But when it comes time for his interaction with finite, limited humans, there is an economic trinity where the, where the son is the one who takes on flesh, okay? And this all flows out of the covenant that was made between the members of, of the Godhead for the purpose of redemption and salvation and creation, right? where they all agreed that, that these are the various roles that we will take on during um, or for the purpose of redemption, which then gives rise to the economic trinity. So spiritual gifts, indwelling, regeneration. Whose, whose role is that specifically? The spirit. He doesn't do those things independently from the father and the son because within the imminent Trinity, they are all one. But in the economic exercise of that Trinitarian theology, there are specific pieces that the Spirit undertakes. So from where we sit, it, it would appear that this is, the, this is the Spirit, but you can't forget the fact that the Spirit is one with the Father. And it's, it's really those ideas that, that kind of get the imminent Trinity, how, how he really truly is, and the economic trinity, how he chooses to engage with humanity that kind of get all just smashed together in John 14, which is part of why interpreting those texts is just like, whoa, there's a lot going on here. Okay, because there are distinct roles within the process of redemption and interaction with humanity. But, you, but Jesus is, is talking to his father with whom there is no difference um, in, in role. Right? Or uh, between he and the Father. D- does that make sense? Kind of? Okay. I love this stuff. I don't understand all this stuff. Yeah. I'm humbled. Yeah. As I'm fond of saying God is greater than we think. Yep. Yeah. And our think is finite. Yep. Yeah. And so at some point, is. Much as we struggle as humans, finite humans, to yes. understand this, and it's glorious to do it because it just magnifies God. Right. But at the end of the day, we have to just say, My God, you are greater than I yes. can even imagine. Amen. No, and that's that's so so well said and so helpful. Because there is a mystery in all of this that exceeds our full ability to comprehend. And we need to acknowledge that. At the same time, however, we can't just approach the Trinity and say it's all a mystery and I can't understand anything about it. And that's the balance we're trying to strike here, guys, is that I'm wanting you to, I'm wanting you to maybe dig a little deeper and go a little further than perhaps you've gone in the past to try to, to try to realize that there are certain things here. And the reason for that is because I believe it's essential to properly understanding the Gospel of John that, that you see some of these things. Um, but that does not mean that we just rip the shroud off the Godhead and say, now we fully understand all the depths of the Trinity. That's not our intention this morning. So I'm really glad. I, meant, I actually wrote a note to, to say that on the front end and I forgot. So I'm really glad you brought that up, Bruce. So is that what it's meant by God plan, Jesus provided, and the Spirit out, out? Yeah, those would be expressions that would refer to the economic Trinity. Okay, but the point that Jesus is making in John 14, this is the reason why, so when Jesus says in John 14, in the text we're going to get to on Sunday, when he says, look, I am going to come to you. Well, no, if, if, you, if you have three completely separate deities, well, is that a statement of integrity? I mean, he didn't come to us, the spirit came to us. Well, you, you can't separate them that way. Jesus can say, I am going to come to you. The Father and I will come and make our dwelling place, our habitation with you. How could he say that? It's because you cannot subdivide the work of the Spirit from the Father and the Son. And so this kind of gets down to the point that we're wanting to make here as it relates to regeneration and illumination. All right, The work of the Spirit in regenerating you, bringing you to life through faith in Jesus Christ alone, the work of the Spirit in illuminating you, allowing you to see, is an extension of the mission of Jesus Christ. It's not as though the Son came and died and was raised again. Check, he did his job. And now the Spirit swings in to do his. No, they're, they're, all, they're all one and the same. And they, they can't be subdivided in that way. Okay? There's a unity that exists there between them. It's why Jesus says, I am Listen to this, John 14:6. the way I am the truth. We talked about that last Sunday. What does that mean? It means that he is the perfect expression, having been begotten of God, from God. It means that you now can know the truth about who God is because you can see and perceive the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, so that, that's what it means for him to be the truth. He's the perfect revelation about the nature of God. But now he says, I am going to send you who? The helper. And he renames the helper in verse, I believe, 17. Look there what he says. The helper who is what? The spirit of what? Truth, right? So Jesus, how can it be that there is a spirit of truth if Jesus is the truth? What's the only solution to that conundrum? They're together, right? The Trinity. But there's a oneness to them. There's no difference between the nature of the Spirit, who is the Spirit of truth, and the nature of the Son, who is the truth, and the nature of the Father, who is the origin of all truth. They're they're one, even though they are distinct from one another. Okay. So that's where I, I, I'm wanting you to see and just grapple with here a little bit um, this idea of unity, because you can't you can't just separate it out and say, well, illumination is only that that's exclusively the territory of the spirit. Um, well, it it is economically, but the Son is very much involved in that because he's the he's the manifest substance of truth from God, who is the definer of truth. Okay, so you can't you can't just separate out one specific act and say That's, that belongs to this member of the Trinity as though the other two members are just sitting back, arms crossed, waiting to see how it turns out. No, they're all intimately involved. When one acts, they all act. Okay, so economically, who gives spiritual gifts? The Spirit does. But when we exercise those gifts, who do those gifts bring glory to? Right, God the Father. That, that's what scriptures literally say, to the glory of God the Father. Why? Because it's as you exercise that gift that you demonstrate the reality of Christ's work within you. And therefore, as Christ's work is made manifest, well, now we see the glory of God. So you can't just hack off specific, act, uh, specific portions of the Christian life or of theology and say, Spirit, without any reference to Father and Son. When one acts, they all act. When one has a desire, that reflects the desire of them all. When you say this is the will of the Spirit, guess what? It's also the will of the Father and the Son. There's a oneness there, because there's no difference in them. And that's what Jesus says over and over and over again. That does not erase the distinctions between them, right? The Son is still going to be the one who is always begotten. And the Spirit is still going to be the one who always proceeds from the Father and the Son. There There is distinction in the persons, but there is a unity and a wholeness that we can't lose sight of. And, and the reason why, guys, that becomes so important is because a lot of times evangelicalism, we, our brand of Christianity, boils the Godhead down into a really nasty stew of tritheism where we think of three separate gods acting in operation kind of under the umbrella of, of the Godhead and we divorce them from each other practically in their operations or in their roles. And that, that doesn't reflect the nature of who God is or how he is. And that's why I've kind of taken us off-roading here today to try to make sure that we come back and understand the greatness of the unity within the Godhead because Jesus certainly saw that and we're going to be hitting that over and over and over again as we go through John 14 through 17, okay? Now, we've got a few minutes left here, okay? Um, Well, one minute left, I guess. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So that's probably as far as we can get in terms of preparation for Sunday. But um, I I hope that that has not been extraordinarily confusing to all of you. And I know that's very, very deep. But I think it is critical theological instruction and background context for where we're gonna be going here over the next few Sundays. And I wanna make sure you guys have some of that context under your belt before we get into it here in the text, okay? Any last questions in this last minute or two here? Uh, yes, I'm sorry, the lights are in my face, I'm sorry. Yeah, and this is where we get into the, the trouble with analogies when it comes to the Trinity, because they all they all Im, kind of immediately begin to break down. Um, because yes, you are one body with a brain and with, with and with limbs, but your limbs are not your brain, and your brain is not your limbs, right? And so there is a difference between your brain and your limbs. They're they're not the same. They're not the same in their substance. They're different. My brain has neurons that you know it, it, with with a density that my that my hands do not have. yeah so rep- representation that part of the analogy works, but but fundamental essence it it breaks down, right um, where where there is a difference. Um, and that's what we're saying within the Trinity there there is no difference, although there 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 maintains distinction, okay Very good. Um, yeah I, I know there's a lot of questions I but I got to let you guys go, so I'm happy to talk with I'm, I see your hand there. I'm happy to talk with you guys afterwards, okay, if you've got more questions. But thanks for hanging in there. I know this was deep, but it's very, very, very important to the interpretation of where we're going here over these next four chapters in John. All right? Have a great day.